Well, amen. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Say amen. amen. If you really mean it, say hallelujah. hallelujah. If you really mean it, say praise the Lord. Now smile. Amen. It's great to be with you today. Thank you for coming to the Heights. And uh, we welcome those of you who are joining us uh, through streaming or on the Internet. It's just such a joy uh, to be here. Pastor Randy, he called me several months ago and he said to me, he said, Steve, he said, I'm going to be in Israel uh, in April and I'd like you to come and fill in for me on that Sunday. Would that be all right? I said, well, absolutely, Randy. I'd be glad to do that. I'd be honored to do that. He said, well, you know, Steve, he said, I, I've known you for so long. And I've heard you preach so many times. He says, you know, you really are a model preacher. I said, no way. He said, yes. He says, you are a model preacher. Now, I don't know what that means, but I like the sound of it. I do like the sound of that. And, and, and you know, I kind of know what a preacher is. I wasn't real sure what a model preacher would be. So I went into my, uh, I went into my study and, and I found my dictionary and I looked up the word model. You know what it said? A small imitation of the real thing. Well, amen. I know he meant well. Amen. We are praying for Randy and the team that is over in Israel right now. We are praying that they're having a fantastic uh, trip and certainly will have a safe uh, journey home. I tell you, this is how you know you're short when you bring your own pulpit everywhere you go. Amen. That pretty much is what I have to do. But I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. You know, I've always been short. I know that's a shock to you. I, I remember uh, I, I remember getting off an airplane not long ago. I was in the Charlotte Douglas International, you know, airport there. And I was waiting on a connector flight to a church where I was going to preach. And uh, and I got off the airplane there in Charlotte. I, I, I sit down at the end of a seat, you know, with a row of chairs there. I sit right on the end. And there's a lady sitting next to me, and she kind of gives me that hello nod. You know, and I say, hey, how you doing? And, and, and I look at her, and I notice something kind of interesting. She is a little person. And then I look beside her, and, and 20 seats beside her, these seats are filled with little people. It's filled with little people, and I'm sitting on the end of the row. And this lady looks at me, and she says, are you here for the convention? I, I, I said, I, I, I don't think so. I, I don't even know what convention you're talking about. And she said, well, it's the convention of the little people of America, of course. Well, I got to tell you, I didn't even know such a group existed. And I was a little offended by the implication, amen, that I ought to be in it. I don't know. But, but, I, but I told her, I said, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here for the convention. And, and then she says to me, she says, well, I, I need you to meet somebody. And she brings over this little guy to meet me. And she introduces him as the president of the little people of America. Now, I got to tell you, in that moment, this is what is going through my mind. I'm thinking, man, I tower over that guy. I mean, I am huge compared to that guy. And I don't know what the height requirement is to get into that group, but I'm thinking maybe I ought to join up. Maybe I could be king of the little people. I don't know. I don't know. I'm excited to be here with you uh, this morning. I, I, I'm Steve Freeman. I am the staff evangelist here at the Heights. And I invite you this morning uh, to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans, the eighth chapter. And as you're turning there, it's amazing to me. I want to read for you a couple of my favorite verses in all of the Word of God. But it's amazing as you're turning to Romans 
It amazes me how easy it is to quote this verse when everything is going great in my life. Do you find that to be true sometimes? Man, when everything's going great in our life, you know what we say? We say, well, praise the Lord, preacher. You know, the Bible says all things work together for good. Well, let me ask you a question today. How do you and I respond when things are not working so good? How do you and I respond when things are tough, when it's difficult? Because isn't it true that sometimes life just stinks? Amen? I mean, have you been there before? Have you been in a tough place? Maybe you're in a tough place right now. It might be a tough moment. It might be a tough season of life. Maybe for some of you, uh, you just found out that the job where you've been working for quite some time the job itself, the company is doing some downsizing and you're kind of on the receiving end of that. Man, that is a tough place. Maybe you find yourself in a very tough or difficult place financially. Maybe you find yourself in a relational crisis. Maybe a marriage that is going south or has already gone south. Certainly, that is a tough place to be. Maybe for some of you this morning, you find yourself in a very difficult health situation. You find yourself in a health crisis with sickness, illness, and disease. Whatever the case may be, wherever you find yourself, boy, sometimes it's hard to quote Romans 8.28 with the same sense of confidence and assurance when, uh, when things are going tough. And, uh, but I want you to look with me again at this verse uh, this morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. The Apostle Paul, of course, writing under the inspiration of God's Spirit. Here's what he says. He says, and we know that all things. Just say that with me. All things. Say it again. All things, all means all, and that's all all can mean. You mark it down. He says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Wow, what a great promise. What a great promise. You know what he doesn't say there, though? You know what Paul doesn't say in that verse? He doesn't say that everything in your life right now is good. Do you see that there? He doesn't say that everything in your life right now is good. But he does make a wonderful promise. He promises that God, listen, God is going to cause all things to work together for good. And he's writing to a very specific group of people, isn't he? He says all things work together for good, first of all, to those who love God. Amen. To those who love God. Who is that? You and I who have given our hearts and our lives to the person of Jesus Christ. He says all things work together for good, first of all, to those who love God. And secondly, he says to those who are called according to God's purpose. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it means that we love God enough that we're going to say to him, you know what, God, I want you to fulfill your purpose, your plan in my life, no matter what it is and no matter what it takes. No matter what it is, God, and no matter what it takes. Well, do you know what it takes sometimes for God to do what he wants to do in your life and mine? Well, I hate to tell you, but sometimes it takes hardship. Sometimes it takes difficulty. Sometimes it may even take tragedy. Sometimes it may take sickness, illness, or disease. And you say, but preacher, what is in all of this that I'm going through right now, in everything that I'm having to deal with, what is God trying to do? Well, that is the $60 million 
question, isn't it? Well, look with me in verse 29. Look what it says. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Boy, stop right there. Do you see that? Do you see what God's doing? You see, God has one great, super overarching purpose for every single child of his. Do you see what God's doing? He wants to make you, and he wants to make me more like Jesus. Amen. He wants to make us more like Jesus. Now, folk, when I think about that, I can't think of a greater compliment in all of the Bible than to think that holy, righteous, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, loving, faithful God, that he wants to make somebody like me and somebody like you like his own dear son. What a great compliment. Amen. But friend, you know what else? I can't think of a greater comfort I can't think of a greater comfort in all of Scripture than to know that whatever God has allowed to come my way, whether it seems good or bad or just hard to understand, whatever God is allowing me to go through, you know what? There is a purpose in it. There is a purpose. There is a plan. And you say, but preacher, some things I may never fully understand. Well, that's true. Some things on this side of heaven, we may never fully understand all of God's plans, all of God's ways. You know, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 55 that his ways are, are not our ways. They're higher than our ways. His, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But I'll tell you what, this is what I can know. Man, I can know that God does have a purpose. He does have a plan in what I'm going through. And I can know that part of that purpose and part of that plan is he's going to use all of this in my life to make me more like Jesus. Amen. What a great comfort. Well, I want to share some things with you uh, this morning. Hopefully, that will be an encouragement uh, to your heart. And uh, especially if you find yourself uh, going through a difficult time, maybe a difficult season of life. I was born a long time ago, back in 1968. I was a premature baby. If you don't know what that is, someone told me one time, they said, well, Steve, you were just a man born before your time. <laughs> And I guess that fellow was right because my mother, she was only five and a half months pregnant when I came along. Most of you understand that is very early. That is very premature. I was quite a surprise, particularly at that moment in my parents' lives. Not only was I a surprise in that moment, but my identical twin brother, Kevin, he was also a surprise. And there were some problems during the birthing process. Kevin and I, we were both so premature, we both stopped breathing several different times. And as a result, Kevin went on to be with the Lord that very day. Now, if anything is, folks, I know that one day I will see Kevin. I know where he is. He's with Jesus. I know where I'll be one day, and that is with Jesus Christ. Well, the doctors, they were able to revive me. They placed me in what they called an incubator type situation just for about three months, just to where I could get enough oxygen, energy, nourishment, and strength to be able to live and to breathe on my own. I know you'll find this hard to believe, but when I was born, I was a very tiny baby at birth. That's right. I weighed in at two pounds and four ounces, and I was only 12 inches long. Some of you are looking at me this morning. You're thinking, you know, Steve, you really have not grown a whole lot uh, since then. That's okay. And I don't know a whole lot about incubators, I'll be honest with you, but I was talking with a farmer in the mountains of North Carolina not long ago. Here's what he told me. He said, well, Steve, he said, an incubator is where we keep baby chickens. So there I was at birth, I guess, surrounded by poultry. I don't know, but I'm in an incubator. 
And as most babies start to grow and mature and develop, most babies, by the time they're two years of age, are doing a number of things. We don't call them babies then. We call them toddlers. And what are toddlers doing? Anything they want. They're running, crawling, climbing, jumping, doing all these things. I couldn't do those things as a young toddler. I couldn't even crawl right. The only thing I could do was to kind of scoop myself along the floor using my arms to pull myself along. Now, my mom and dad, they knew that wasn't right. They had taken me to a lot of doctors in Wilmington, North Carolina, where I was born. And the doctors told my parents, they said, well, Mr. Miss Freeman, they said, your son Steve, he has cerebral palsy. And they said, be prepared. They said, he will never walk. They said, he'll never graduate from high school. They said, he'll never become what you and I know to be a functional member of society. And they went on and on and on about all the things I'd never do, never accomplish, never be, or never achieve. Well, well, I thank God this morning. I, I, I think my mom and dad knew something the doctors did not know. They knew Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Amen. And I am thankful. I am thankful that God had better plans for my life. Well, my mom and dad, they did the only thing they knew to do. And they did the very thing you would do if you were in their place. What do you think they did? Man, they prayed. They prayed a lot. They prayed, God, help our baby boy. God, help him. He's so small. He's so tiny. He's so helpless. God, the doctors are saying all these terrible things about his life and about his future and about possibilities. God, help him. And then they went one step further, and I'm glad they did. They said, God, we give that little boy to you. God, we give that little boy to you. God, you can have him, but help our baby boy. The Lord heard my parents' prayers and directed my parents to take me to Durham, North Carolina. We met some doctors in Durham at a teeny tiny little hospital there in Durham, Duke Medical Center. Maybe you've heard of it. Just a small place. And, uh, and these doctors said, hey, we think we can help Steve learn to walk. What we need to do is to operate on his legs. And that's what, that's what they did. At the age of four, they operated on my legs. That is, I was four years old, not the doctors. Well, thank goodness for that. But they operated on my legs at the age of four, and I stayed at Lennox Baker Children's Hospital there in Durham for about three months. And during that time, I began to learn to do some things that I'd never done by myself or on my own, things that I'm guilty of taking for granted. Maybe you are. Things like how to sit up on my own, things like how to crawl, things like how to stand, things like how to fall, how to walk, and later they would teach me how to run. You know, it's kind of silly to me now, but I remember the doctors actually spending several afternoons teaching me how to fall. I thought that was pretty crazy. I told the doctors, I don't have any trouble falling. I can do that quite well. Teach me how to walk and I won't need to know how to fall. That was my thinking. But they taught me to do these things. The day came that I was up and I was walking on crutches It was time for me to go home, and then as a young five-year-old boy, I enrolled in the public school system. Now, you know what I found out growing up in school? I found out what some of you already know. I found out that sometimes children can be very cruel and not even realize it. Uh, you, You know what else I found out, though? I found out sometimes children can be very cruel and know exactly what they are doing. And you see, for me, growing up in elementary school, first, second, third, fourth grade, on and on and on, sometimes it would seem that I would catch the brunt of all these children's cruelties. I mean, I could remember doing simple things, like getting up and walking across a classroom to sharpen a pencil, and I'd hear somebody go, shh, 
There goes that handicapped boy. They'd say, there goes that crippled kid. They'd say, what's wrong with him? They'd say, why is he so short? Why does he walk so funny? They'd say, why is he so incredibly good looking? No, I'm just kidding. They never said that. (laughs) I wish they would have. They'd say a lot of things that were hurtful. I'd come home from school sometimes crying my eyes out to my mom and dad because of what some child had said to me at the school or on a playground. I'm thankful uh, that my mom and dad, you know, they never taught me that silly thing that sometimes parents teach their children. You know that little saying, it goes something like this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. What a load of garbage that is, amen? (laughs) Folk, I want to tell you, sticks and stones do hurt, and they do break bones. But you know what else hurts? Words. Words hurt. Words can hurt. Words thrust into the heart of a little boy or a little girl. I want to tell you, words can hurt. But you know what else? Words can heal. Amen? Words can heal. And I'm thankful for a mom and dad who, when I was in those dark places, in those tough days, they would wrap their arms around me and assure me of their love. But you know what else they did? Man, they took me to church. They took me to church. And I began to hear about God, and I began to hear about Jesus, and I began to hear about his love for me as a very young boy. But I got to tell you, it didn't make a lot of sense. Not at first. It didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, you know what I thought? I thought, well, if God loved me so much, why did he make me this way? If God really loves me, why was I born like this? Why do I walk this way? Why do I have this difficulty, this handicap? Why are kids making fun of me at school all the time? Why am I having to go through this if God loves me so much? And my parents, one of the things they would say over and over and over again, they'd say, Steve, all we know is this. God loves you very much. And he allowed you to be made the way that you are for a very special reason. And they'd say, you know what, Steve? We may not know what that reason is, but man, God does. God knows exactly what it is. And they would tell me that over and over and over again. And finally, as a nine-year-old boy, it began to sink into my head and more importantly, into my heart. And as a nine-year-old boy, I walked down the aisle of the church we attended. And I took my preacher by the hand. But more importantly, I gave Jesus my heart. I gave Jesus my heart. And you know what Jesus did for this nine-year-old boy? He did exactly what this nine-year-old boy needed. He did exactly what this nine-year-old boy could not do for himself. Jesus saved this nine-year-old boy. Amen. And you know what? I wish I could tell you that the moment I gave my heart and life to Jesus down at the altar with my pastor, man, I wish I could tell you that when I stood up from that prayer time, all my problems magically disappeared. Wouldn't that be great? Amen? But that's not what happened. When I stood up from that prayer time, I want to tell you something. I was still short. That's right. I still walked funny. I still had cerebral palsy. But the difference is, it no longer had me. Amen. Who has me? Jesus. Who has you, if you know him? Jesus has you. I am so thankful. Friend, I want to tell you, that was a turning point in my life. And you know what it didn't do? It didn't mean that kids didn't make fun of me anymore. They still did. But you know what? Even when they would, I could hear the voice of God saying to my heart, but I love you just the way that you are. I created you just the way that you are with a very specific plan and purpose for your life. Amen? 
I went on through high school. As a young high school student, God called me to serve him in ministry. I didn't know what in the world I could possibly do to serve the Lord. I didn't have any ideas. You know, I I said, Lord, I I feel like you're calling me to serve you, a life of ministry. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, though. I I don't have a lot of gifts. I don't have have a lot of gifts. I don't have a lot of talents. What in the world could I do? And the only thing I knew anything about as a young high school student, I knew a little bit about singing and playing a piano, and I thought, well, maybe God wants me to do something with music. And so I went to college at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, and I got a music degree. And then while I was in college, just just prior to graduating from college, I thought, well, if God wants me in ministry, you know, I guess maybe I need to go to preacher school after this. Maybe I need to go to seminary and learn about those things. And so then I went to preacher school at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary there in Wake Forest and got a master's degree uh, from there. But I got to tell you, even when I started seminary, I didn't know exactly what God would have me do. And it's so interesting because what, what happened was my phone started ringing in the little dorm room where I lived on the seminary campus. The phone started ringing and young preacher boys would call and they'd say, Hey, Brother Steve, I hear you sing a little bit. And I'd say, Yeah, I sing a little bit. And they'd say, Would you come to our church and sing for us? I said, Sure, I'd be glad to do that. And then other preacher boys would call and they'd say, Hey, Brother Steve, I hear you preach a little bit. And I'd say, Yeah, I preach a little bit. And they'd say, Would you come and preach for us at our church? And I'd say, Sure. And then other preachers would call young preacher boys and they'd say, Hey, Steve, I hear you preach and sing a little bit. Would you come and preach and sing a little bit at our church? And I'd say, Sure, I'd be glad to do that. And you you know what God was doing? God was, in those days, he was calling me into a life of the full-time evangelist. And I want to tell you, 25 years later, the phone hasn't stopped ringing. Amen. That's what God's doing. But I tell you, one of the things I was praying about as a young seminary student, I said, okay, Lord, if that's what you want me to do, you want me to go around and preach and sing at all these different churches, I'd be glad to do that. I'll do that. But I tell you what, God, let me ask you this. God, is there a way that I can do it and not totally be alone? Do you know what I'm saying, Lord? God, do you have anybody out there who could love me just the way that I am? God, you know how bashful I am, how shy I am, how awkward I am around people. And God, you know I like girls a whole lot. They don't seem to like me back. I get, I get that friend speech a lot. Lord, you know that speech I've gotten into a lot of times. These girls say, I want to be your friend. I didn't want any more friends. Amen. I had enough friends. I was ready to get married. Amen. I wanted a wife. I said, God, do you have somebody who can love me just the way that I am? And the summer before my last semester in seminary, I met my wife, Lisa. I met my wife, Lisa. We fell in love. And she asked me to marry her. I couldn't say no. Amen. I was pretty excited about the whole thing. She gave me the prettiest ring you ever did see. And, uh, no, I tell you, we got married in September of 94 and, uh, We've got these two great kids now. Some of you know my family. My daughter, Berkeley, who's 18, and my son, Kevin, who is 14. And for a whole lot of years, I'm in my 25th year of being a full-time evangelist. And, you know, people have asked me through the years, well, Steve, what exactly is a full-time evangelist? I'll tell you. It is a preacher without a job. Amen. (laughs) That is the sad truth. Amen it is. 
No church necessarily wants me to be their pastor, but you know, it's so interesting that God has allowed us to travel across this nation and sometimes into other places, other parts of the world, and to be able to preach and to sing. We've seen a whole lot of people through the years come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus, and uh, and so we're so very grateful that God still allows us to do that and still takes care of our family through the ministry uh, that he's called us to. But I say all of that to say this, folks. Even when you're doing what you know God wants you to do, even when you're doing what God, you know God wants you to do, that doesn't mean that your life is going to be free of challenge. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be free of difficulty. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be easy by any stretch of the imagination. My family and I, we were reminded of that in a very real way uh, back several years ago in 2009 when I was diagnosed with cancer. In 2009, in the spring of 2009, I was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of testicular cancer. I didn't know anything about testicular cancer at the time, except what I, what I had read about Lance Armstrong, and when he was diagnosed, it had already gotten into his lungs, and into his brain, and he was only given a 50-50 chance for survival. Man, so when I was diagnosed, man, I tell you, it was like the bottom had dropped out of our world. Things were shattered, you can understand. I got inducted into a club I never wanted to be in. Any cancer diagnosis is difficult. It is hard. It is scary. And you ever try to remind the Lord of some things? You think maybe he's forgotten? You ever do that to the Lord? I I said, God, wait a minute. Cancer? Me? I mean, God, come on. God, you know, hey, I'm your evangelist guy. You know, I'm the little guy that'll go anywhere, preach, sing, do whatever you want him to do. And God, you know what? I don't think I need cancer right now. You ever say that kind of thing to the Lord? God, and then, you ever try to remind God of some stuff? You think he's forgotten? I, I said, Lord, wait a minute. Cancer? I said, Lord, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. God, I already have a little something that I deal with already every day of my life. Cerebral palsy. I said, I said, hey, God, isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? Well, apparently, folk, it's not enough. It's not enough for God to do what he wants to do in my life. Now, now don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that for you to be the person God wants you to be, and for you to be in, in, in the center of God's will for your life, that you have to have cerebral palsy or cancer or both. I'm not saying that at all. But, but you know what? Apparently, this is part of God's plan for my life. Man, I didn't want that diagnosis. Nobody does. And, and so I went through, in the spring of '09. I went through a couple of surgeries. One surgery to remove a tumor. The second surgery... They called it a lymph node surgery. They were going to take my guts out. Can I say guts? They they took my guts out. And they went into the back of my abdominal wall. And they took out 30 lymph nodes. Because they needed to test these lymph nodes for the cancer. To see where we were. And the surgeon who operated on me. He said, Steve. He said, you know, I took all those lymph nodes out. And uh, he said, the good news is only one of them. Only one of those lymph nodes had any cancer in it, and I got it. Man, I got that thing out. And I said, praise the Lord. But then the surgeon said something kind of curious to me. (laughs) He said, you know, Steve, as I take your guts out and had them on the table, and I got all those lymph nodes out, and then when I was putting everything back in and trying to sew you up, you know what I realized? The surgeon said, I realized you are a very compact person. 
I got to tell you, in that moment, that really worried me. Because I was thinking, did that surgeon not realize I was compact before he started cutting on me? I mean, really? I think I would have picked up on that right from the start. I really do. I think I would have. But, but he said, hey, look, 30 lymph nodes, only one had the cancer in it. I got it. He said, it, it, it's going to take you the spring and the summer to recover from these surgeries. You won't be doing a lot of preaching in the spring and summer, but by the fall, you should be back on the road. I said, well, good. So here comes September. September of 09, I'm back on the road. I'm preaching revivals again. I'm in Sanford, North Carolina, preaching revival. I come home from Sanford on Thursday. And on Friday, I have to report to Johnston Willis Hospital early that morning for a uh, CT scan, for a CAT scan. It's a follow-up CAT scan. They're going to do some blood work as well. And, um, and they did the scan. And as I was getting ready to leave, the nurse says to me, and to Lisa, uh, don't leave just yet, guys. And I said, oh, really? I said, what's going on? And she said, well, we just want to make sure we got all the pictures we needed. And I didn't think anything of it. And then later, she came back and she said, Mr. Freeman, she said, uh, we're going to have to admit you to the hospital today. And, and I said, today? I said, what's going on? And she said, well, you've got a couple of blood clots as we're looking at your CT scan. You've got a blood clot in your renal vein. I didn't know what that was. That is the vein that carries blood to and from the kidneys. She said, you've got a blood clot in your renal vein, and you've got a blood clot in your lung. And you know what I said? I said, well, I feel fine. I said, I, I feel great. I just got back from preaching a revival. I'm an evangelist. I tell people about Jesus. She said, but we need to admit you to the hospital today. I said, ma'am, I said, that doesn't really work for me. Today is Friday. I said, I'm going to tell you, tomorrow is Saturday. And what I'm doing tomorrow is I'm getting on an airplane tomorrow, and I'm flying down to Louisiana. I'm going down to Duck Dynasty country. I'm going to be telling people down there about Jesus. That's what i got to do tomorrow. And she looked at me like I was a nut. She said, Mr. Freeman, you're not getting on an airplane tomorrow. I said, no, no, I, I have to. I'm an evangelist. See, I go tell people about Jesus and this church. They've already bought my ticket. It'd be kind of rude for me not to show up. You know, I, I got to go. And then the nurse says to me, are you crazy? She said, Mr. Freeman, if you get on an airplane tomorrow with a couple of blood clots, you're 30,000 feet above the surface of the earth. Man, in that pressurized cabin, those things will start moving around. They might go to your brain and kill you. And then you know what I said to her? I said, well, maybe I'm not getting on an airplane tomorrow then. (laughs) It's amazing how quickly my mind changed about going to Louisiana that next day. I said, whoa, you're trying to scare me. She said, I am. I'm trying to scare some sense into you. We have got to check you into the hospital today and start working on these blood clots. And she said to me, she said, now, before we check into Johnston Willis, she said, I want you to go upstairs And I want you to speak to your oncologist. Well, every cancer patient has an oncologist. And mine is Dr. Gonzalez. Maybe some of you know him. And the first time I met Dr. Gonzalez, he's from Argentina. And he speaks with a very heavy Argentinian accent. And the first time I met him was in the spring of 09. And I walked into his office and he says, Hello, Mr. Freeman. He says, Tell me, what do you do for a living And I looked at him and I said, well, I said, I'm a Southern Baptist evangelist. He said, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. I I said, Dr. Gonzalez, I said, why do you say that? He says, well, Steve, he says, you do not know me very well, but I would tell you. He says, I am a Catholic. 
He says, and you Baptists do not like us Catholics very much. Well, I looked at him at that moment, and here's what I said to him. I said, Dr. Gonzalez, I want you to know something right now. I love you. And I want you to love me and take good care of me. Well, that afternoon in September of 2009, I go up into Dr. Gonzalez's office. And I walk in there and I say, Dr. Gonzalez, what is going on? These, these nurses are saying they got to check me into the hospital. they got to admit me today because i got these blood clots. And he says, yes, yes, Mr. Freeman, I know all about that. He says, yes, it is very common with people who have cancer to develop blood clots. Very common. And I said, yeah, I said, people who've had cancer. You know, I had cancer back in the spring of 09, and then you guys did those couple of surgeries, and everybody told me I was good, I was in good shape, and now they're telling me they got to admit me to a hospital. And then Dr. Gonzalez said this. He said, oh, he said, they did not tell you? He said, the cancer is back. He said, the cancer is back. He said, you have a three-centimeter mass pressing against your abdomen. It's in your abdomen, pressing up against that renal vein. He said, apparently, when they did the lymph node surgery, they missed one of the lymph nodes. And it continued to grow in your body. And now it's three centimeters. He said, so, yes, you've got a couple of blood clots. And, yes, the cancer is back. And, yes, we have to start immediately on a very aggressive chemotherapy treatment. He says, you're going to have 28 treatments of chemo in 12 weeks. What that means is, five days a week, one week, one day a week, the next week, one day a week, the next week, and that is called one cycle of chemo. We're going to repeat that four times. You're going to have four cycles of chemo. 12 weeks in a row, you're not going to get any time off from chemo. He says, all the negative things you hear about chemo, the hair loss, the vomiting, the fatigue, the nausea, it's going to all be true in your case. Folk, I want to tell you, in that moment, my wife and I, we just sat in that office. We couldn't believe what we were hearing. It's like the bottom had dropped out of our world. We were crying. We were upset. God, why? In fact, for me, you know what? I think it was worse hearing that it had come back than when I originally got the diagnosis. And God, why? Why am I having to go through this? And you know what? The only thing, The only thing God would bring to my mind and heart is Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, friend, I want to tell you, I'm glad to be here today. Amen. I went through a whole lot of chemo, a whole lot of treatment. Amen. And God is teaching me some lessons through this. And I want to leave with you four lessons and we're going to close. Lesson number one is this. God is in control, not me. Amen? God is in control, not me. You know what? Anytime you think you are in control, you are crazy. (laughs) You're fooling yourself. We're not in control. And I am very thankful that when my world is spinning out of control... I'm thankful that I can know there's a God in heaven who is in control. Amen? Lesson number two. Life is a gift, so don't waste it. Life is a gift, so don't waste it. I, I want to tell you, every day that I wake up, <laughs> I can put my feet on the floor, I can walk across, I can go and do pretty much what I want to go and do. Friend, I want to tell you what, that is a gift from the Lord. Amen? 
And, and people ask me all the time, they say, well, preacher, how, how long do you think you have? I have no idea. I could have 30 more years. I could have 30 minutes. The truth is, none of us know. Amen? But I tell you what I do know. I want my life to count. Man, I want it to make a difference. I want it to impact people. I want it to count for my family. I want it to count for my friends. I want it to count for you. I want it to count for the thousands of people I meet every year as I travel across this country in our ministry. I want it to count for the millions of people that I have yet to meet but long to impact through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Life is a gift. So don't waste it. A third thing God's teaching me is this. People are precious. So let them know it. People are precious. So let them know it. My wife Lisa. She is so precious to me. Our kids. They are so precious. My wife. She took me to every single doctor's appointment. Every single chemo treatment. She was there with me. Every step. Every moment. And you know who else is precious? I tell you. My kids. They are so precious to me. My daughter, Berkeley, my son, Kevin. When, when I was going through that chemo in, in the fall of 2009, I was so sick. I'd lost all my hair. Some of you remember those days. I was slick as a cue ball. Amen. And for some of you, as I look around the congregation this morning, some of you have that same look. And it looks good on you, but it did not look good on me. I just looked sick. You know, I was. And, uh, and I can remember uh, back in 09 in the fall, and my kids, my little boy, my little girl, they'd come climb, they'd crawl in the bed with me, and they'd begin to pray for their daddy. And my little boy, Kevin, who at the time was six years of age, one of the things that he'd pray is this. He'd pray, Lord, please help my daddy's hair to grow back. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> I am so thankful for that prayer. And then my daughter, Berkeley, and Kevin, you know, one of the things they both would pray for me, they'd pray this prayer. They'd pray, Lord, help our dad to feel better so he can go tell more people about Jesus. Wow. Man, I'd cry and I'd weep as they'd pray and I'd say, God, hear their prayers. I don't even think I have the strength to pray what they are praying But I'm so thankful. My family is so precious to me. You guys are so precious to me as my home church. Because so many of you, man, you were praying for us. You were helping us. You were financially supporting our ministry in ways that we had never seen up to that point. And we're so very grateful. Churches across this country were praying for us and and, and helping us and, and, and lifting us up to the Lord. We are so grateful for the precious people that God has put in our lives. You know, the last lesson that God is teaching me through this is lesson lesson number four. God is faithful, and I can trust him no matter what. Amen? God is faithful, and I can trust him no matter what. Folks, you know what? I I don't know what the future holds, but, but, but God's teaching me that he's faithful. He's teaching me that he's faithful and that I can trust him. No matter what my future holds, no matter what your future holds, we can trust the Lord. Amen? He's got it. And, and in a time when, when, when things were at their darkest for us, in our family, in our life, with my health, all of these things are going on. And, and you know what's interesting? In the year of 2009, as a full-time evangelist, where normally I'm on the road a whole lot, preaching in a lot of different churches, I didn't do that a lot in 2009. In fact, I only preached about five times. Probably about five times the whole year. And you say, well, preacher, if God provides for your family through your ministry as you're traveling on the road and you didn't preach but five times that year, how did God take care of you? 
That, that's the thing. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. How do we pay the bills? How do we pay the mortgage? How do we pay the insurance? How do we provide food and clothing for the family? Listen, God did it. And one of the ways God did it, I will tell you, he used some of you. And he used some other folk who came alongside and partnered with our ministry, not only with their prayers, but with their finances. And then they started supporting our ministry and helping us during that year. And, and my wife, Lisa, she would go to the mailbox sometimes and there'd be a card in the mail and it'd say, Hey, Brother Steve, we're praying for you and your family. And she'd look inside that card and there might be a $10 bill, maybe a $25 check. And, and, and when those times happened in the year of 2009, you know what it was like God doing? It was like God putting his hand on our shoulders and saying to us, I've not left you. I know where you are. I know what you need, and I'm faithful, and you can trust me no matter what. Aren't you thankful we serve a God who's faithful? Amen. Amen. Give the Lord a hand. Would you bow with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you, for you are faithful. God, I thank you that... You're in control, not us. God, I'm thankful that life is a gift. And I pray that you're impressing upon our hearts today, each one of us, that it is a gift and we don't want to waste it. God, I pray that you're impressing upon our hearts just how precious people are to us. And we'll let them know that, just how precious they are. Just how much they mean to us. And God, most of all, remind us, as I believe you've done today through your word, that you are faithful and we can trust you no matter what. God, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.